I hate to silence you because actually I love all the happy chatter and I just love looking out and seeing all of your faces. It's just, it's just really, really a blessing. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for the ability to gather here. I thank you for the, the word that we have from you and we can gather around it, that we can think deeply about it, that we can uh, share um, how it applies to us, Father. Um, I just pray that I will speak truth today and that it will be received in Jesus' name. Okay, well, I know that Natalie um, mentioned Halloween last week at the beginning of her talk. And I thought, that's interesting, because I'm going to begin with Halloween, too. Um, so most of you know that I teach piano. And several times each year, uh, we have what I call piano parties or group parties. And I always have one around the Halloween time. And everybody at the, ha- at the parties, we, we play some games, some music games, and everybody shares a song with each other. And we eat, which is by far their favorite part, uh, for sure. Um, but at Halloween time, I let them dress up, and we do something kind of cool, which is they all have to find a song that they already have in their lesson book that's maybe in a minor key, it sounds scary, sounds sad, um, to play, or they can find a song that's happy, and we'll change a few notes to make it sound sad or scary, and then they have to come up with their own spooky title. So they just change the name of it, they call it something scary. So a song like My Daydream might become My Nightmare, or Cat Patrol might become Monster Patrol. Um, but they all, they all make up whatever they want. Well, this past year was really the first time I had some really interesting titles. One was My Mom. Because he said, nobody's scarier than my mom. And I know her. I can see it. But this one was the best. I really laughed out loud on this one. So listen up. It's clear your desk and get a pencil. We're going to have a pop quiz. That was the winner. Because tests are scary, right? Tests can fill you with dread. Have you had a, uh, a, a dream, a nightmare, um, where... You're in school again, and there's a test you didn't study for, you know, and you're having to take the test. Um, so they're, they're scary. Tests are hard. They're, you know, they're scary. But tests are also a great tool because not only does it show the teacher what you know, but it shows you what you know. So we're going to be talking a lot about testing today and the temptations of Jesus. But ironically, the part of this chapter that I thought, oh, I'll never say anything about that, is actually what I want to start with, which is, which is the genealogy. Everybody's favorite part of the Bible is always the genealogies, right? All the names. Um, but I think this is interesting, so hopefully this will make sense as we go along. There are two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Luke's is different from Matthew's in several ways. First, Matthew begins his whole book with the genealogy. Chapter one, it's the genealogy while Luke inserts it between Jesus' baptism and his temptations. The next thing that's different are the names on the list. There's actually different names in each one, and so that a lot of scholars have a lot of questions about that, and they think there may be some mistakes. Um, And there's a lot of theories, but the one that um, I liked that I read, there was a number, is that Matthew is giving the royal slash legal line of Jesus through his father Joseph, 
whereas Luke is giving the biological line through Mary, even though she's not mentioned. Um, so, but I thought that was pretty cool. And so therefore, Matthew's genealogy is showing Jesus as his, the rightful heir to David's throne, his royalty, while Luke is more interested in showing his humanity. Um, the, another thing is Matthew begins with Abraham and goes forward to Jesus, while Luke begins with Jesus and goes all the way back through Abraham, all the way back to Adam, who was the what? Son of God. Um, and I think that's the, the point. It's a pretty cool echo from what just happened in the baptism in which God declared that he is his son and he's proud of him. Um, but also the mention of Adam, who is, we're all related to. The whole human race is related to Adam. Um, and so Luke, remember, is writing to a Gentile, and so Theophilus. And so he's trying to show, hey, this is not just a savior who's come for the Jews. He has come for all people, Jews and non-Jews. So listen to this quote from John Piper. It's a little long, and I apologize, but I thought it was really good. This then calls to mind Paul's teaching that Christ is a second Adam, the beginner of a new humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 49, Paul says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the end of that quote of the scripture. Here's continuing Piper. There is no reason to think Luke was ignorant of this idea as Christ, the second Adam, since he was with Paul as much as anyone. If this was before his mind, then one reason he inserted the genealogy here was to stress that like Adam, Jesus was man and was uniquely created by God, and that therefore he is a new and second Adam whose ministry will be to create and assemble a new race of humans who are not marked by Jewishness or non-Jewishness, but by the dove-like character of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was really interesting because it is kind of interesting to have that genealogy where it's placed. Well, speaking of Adam and temptation, you had a little list that you had to do in your homework and maybe a chart and compare and contrast. So here are the things I had written down. Both Adam and Jesus were tempted by Satan. Both had an initial test involving food. Adam was in a lush garden of perfection with an abundance of food whereas Jesus was in a wilderness and hadn't eaten for more than a month. So think about that for a moment. I mean, we think we're starving if we're late for lunch, you know, much less missing a meal or missing, you know, 40 days of meals. It's crazy. Adam fails his test with Satan, but Jesus, of course, passes his. Also, I think there's echoes here in chapter 4 of the children of Israel. They escaped Egypt. They came through the Red Sea, which is, some say it's a picture of baptism, and then they quickly failed to trust God, resulting in 40 years of wandering in a wilderness. And we hear, see here the, the, that 40, again, 40 days of testing um, at Satan's hands for Jesus. So just as a doctor, at the end of all his training, he has to pass the boards, a lawyer has to pass the bar, Jesus had to pass these tests in order to enter his ministry to carry out the mission that his father had planned for him. So let's look, if you have your Bibles open, um, chapter 4, verse 1. 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So I want to say, first of all, that the commentators that I read said there was no reason to think that Jesus was not tempted during all of that time for 40 days. And these are just the three that get mentioned, the three temptations that get mentioned. Doesn't necessarily say at the end he was tempted. So we don't really know, but these are the ones that we do know about. Um, The word full in verse one means totally filled up. The Greek word there, if you think of like a jar, it's filled to the brim or of a surface, totally covered. So Jesus was completely permeated, saturated with the Holy Spirit. And along with that, he was armed with scripture. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Notice that Satan says, If you're the Son of God. Well, Greek scholars, and I am not one, <laughs> that I read said that there's a, I think it was an, um, an article or par- participle, I'm not sure, that this would better be translated as since you're the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, blah, 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 do this. So Satan knew who Jesus was. It wasn't necessarily uh, testing to see who Jesus was for Satan. Uh, Here's a quote by John MacArthur. The force of the temptations was not to make Jesus doubt his sonship. It was not to make him prove his sonship. The force of the temptations was to make Jesus step out of his humiliation and act on his own apart from the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit, therefore putting a breach in the Trinity. That was the temptation. So you see, Jesus was not being tempted as God with his divine powers. He was being tempted in his flesh, fully man, full of the Holy Spirit, yes, but fully man and armed with Scripture. The first temptation is to turn bread into stone. This week, or this morning, I asked my group, if you had not eaten for 40 days, um, what would you want to eat? And they all said things like chips. And I'm like, no sweets. I would go straight for the sweets, personally. But um, So we could never be really tempted to do this, right? This is, we can do this. I mean, we would want to eat, but we could not ourselves turn stones into bread, like you and I. We can do that. This temptation would not apply to us. But... Is that really what the temptation is? Just like the temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden wasn't really about just eating a nice piece of fruit. It was doubting God, right? So underneath this, there's more. If you dig down, it's a temptation to doubt God. Here it seems Satan is tempting Jesus to doubt God's love, to doubt his provision, to step out of his humanity, pull out his divine powers, and meet his needs in his own way. Can you imagine him saying, Satan saying, if your father really loved you, do you think he'd just let you starve out here? I mean, don't you think he'd feed you? Don't you think he would uh, send some food your way, send some manna from heaven, send some ravens? Like, why would he let you starve? Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? What did they complain about? We're hungry. Why have you brought us out here to kill us? We, made, we miss all the food in Egypt. They doubted God. They doubted his love. They doubted his provision. So I will ask you, I've asked myself, have you ever been tempted to doubt God's provision for you? 
Have you had needs go unmet that caused you to, go, to doubt God's care for you? Have you ever doubted his love? We've all heard the question, how could a loving God do blank or let blank happen? Maybe you think your sin is too great for him to ever forgive you or to love you. What hungers are you trying to fill in your own way? Do you have a hunger for stuff, for acceptance, for love, for worth, self-sufficiency, control? We could make quite a list. Um, That's just mine. Y'all can add to that if you want. Um, Let's move on to verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which you'll remember from our study of Deuteronomy is the book of God's instructions to man on how to live, what God expects from those he redeems. And Jesus is saying, I'm a man. Here's what God has said to man. So I'm going to tell you this, Satan. Here's the complete context of that verse. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We can trust God's love and provision to meet every need that we have. We can trust that we have life in Christ that sustains us and provides all of our needs. Here's another verse for you, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to them, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The father of lies is telling this to Jesus. Do you believe him? Um, What's the underlying test here? I think it's to doubt God's plan. Because God is building a kingdom And Jesus is going to rule the kingdom, but it will be built on a road of suffering, of a death on a cross, and resurrection from a grave. But Satan is offering him a shortcut. Worship me, and you can have everything you want. He says the same thing to us. How often do we doubt God's plan for us? A plan to obey his laws and only worship him? How often do we decide to follow our own plans? to create and rule our own little kingdoms, to set up our own idols in high places. I have a lot of those. Um, I wanted to share a test that I went through just a few months ago. Um, Back in February, my little grandson, Oliver, had RSV, and he was put in a Laboner. And, uh, oh, I hope I can get through this without crying, y'all. Um, very quickly, he was moved to ICU, and they kept increasing his oxygen, and um, they finally had to put him on a ventilator, and uh, he was still struggling, and so they ended up uh, putting him in a medically induced coma, and it was very, very possible that he was going to die, and um, I remember one morning going to the hospital to be with Matt and Katie, and we stood at his bed in his little lifeless body and we hugged each other and we prayed and I said in my prayer 
God, you're good. You're faithful no matter what happens. You're good. You're faithful. Your plan is perfect for us. Um, obviously, I begged him to save Oliver, but come what may, I knew that he was good. And um, that is an example of what testing can do for you. It shows you what you know. It showed me what I really, really knew about God, and it caused me to rely on him in that moment. And it was precious to me, and I'm thankful for it, and I'm thankful that he answered our prayers to restore Oliver. He's so healthy. Um, But testing can be good. All right. I got through it. (laughs) All right, verse 8. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, again, wielding the sword of Scripture. That is our application. I think Jesus' words is the perfect application. We are to worship and serve only God, trust his plan, and follow him. Verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I forgot to note what this scripture is, but I know it's from Psalms that, saw, that Satan is quoting. Um, I can just think, think, in the, think in my mind that it's almost as if Satan says, okay, you're just going to use scripture? Well, here's a scripture for you. I'm going to use scripture too. I know it. And it says that if you just go ahead and step off here, God is going to save you. So the underneath of this test, I'm thinking about this, it's sort of as if Satan is actually asking Jesus to put God to the test, his own father to the test. Like, surely if you step out in faith, God will save you. Um, another way of looking at it at the test is that the root of it isn't so much doubting God as it is trusting God presumptuously, trusting him to do something that he has not said he would do, um, or you attempting to control God by you formulating your plan, and then you're asking God to get on board with your plan. Um, about 10 years ago, I think it was The Prayer of Jabez, this book became like hugely popular. It was like a number one seller in Lifeway. Um, and it's based on a prayer in Chronicles where this guy's asking God to bless him and en- enrich him and, you know, expand his fields or something. Um, but it was sort of used in the book as like this magic formula. You know, if you'll just pray this prayer and you do these things, then abracadabra, you are going to be blessed. Um, Name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel. If you just have enough faith, and you say enough positive things, and you give enough to this cause or whatever, give money to me, um, you'll have everything you want, right? Sounds very similar, right? It's a satanic idea. Um, Let's look at verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put your Lord to the test. Your God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This time, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16 as as the reference. So Jesus passed all of his Satan's tests with flying colors. He trusted his Father. He remained obedient. Guided by the Holy Spirit, he used God's word to defeat his enemy. Um, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis I wanted to read because I just this really makes you think. I like this so much. 
No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into the temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means, the only complete realist. And thank God he endured every temptation. Um, thank God. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is such a great application for us. He is able to help us. More applications. First, ask God to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help when you encounter temptation. Luke 11.13 says, this is Jesus speaking. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In Galatians 5, 16 through 18 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Second, study God's word. Meditate on it. Know what it means. You are all here because you're committed to studying God's word, and we need to be armed with the scripture to be able to fight temptation. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And third, trust God's goodness in testing. Trust his love in his plan. Don't grumble, but obey him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide an escape so that you can stand up under it. John Milton famously wrote the poem, Paradise Lost, about Adam's fall, but I didn't realize until I was doing the study that he actually wrote a second poem entitled Paradise Regained, about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So I want to close with this small excerpt from the poem, and it's in more newer English, so I don't destroy it. I, who a long while ago sang of the happy garden, lost by one man's disobedience, now sing to all mankind of paradise regained, through one man's obedience being tested with every temptation, and the tempter beaten with all his cunning, beaten and thrown back, and Eden created again, in the empty wilderness. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you endured every temptation, that you beat back the tempter. And Father, we know that you eventually destroyed him on the cross. And for that, we are so grateful to you. Um, 
Help us to live each day in that reality, to trust you and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.